Across the Movie Aisle, presented by Bulwark Plus. I am your host, Sonny Bunch, culture editor of The Bulwark. I am joined, as always, by Alyssa Rosenberg of The Washington Post and Peter Suderman, Reason Magazine. Alyssa, Peter, how are you today? Good. How are you? Happy to be talking about movies with friends. Uh, Alyssa, I'm fine. Thank you for asking. Uh, first up in controversies and controversies. Ted Cruz and Seth Rogen are having a very nasty Twitter spat. Uh, yes, the two are destroying our image of the kind, pliant Canadian by getting into a pissy back and forth about who is actually a piece of shit. And as a gentle warning to those of you who might be listening with ch children in the car or whatever, I apologize. Uh, this section of the show is going to be a little bit blue. Um, it all started when Seth Rogen uh, replied to a, a tweet from Cruz with, Fuck off, you fascist. Uh, Cruz took the bait saying that rich Hollywood elites like Seth Rogen dislike him, while salt-of-the-earth union types losing their jobs as a result of Biden's environmentalist policies love him. Uh, Rogen replied with, ha-ha, get fucked, fascist, and also uh, reminded Ted Cruz that he is, in fact, in four unions. Uh, then, later, uh, after Ted Cruz said his favorite movie was Fantasia, Seth Rogen tweeted, everyone who made that film would hate you. So, to my mind, there are two different things at work here. On the one hand, you have a citizen engaged in constructive dialogue with his elected officials. Great. Uh, I myself have often felt the need to tell senators and congressmen to get fucked, as is my right as an American citizen under the protections afforded me by the United States Constitution. Uh, on the other hand, though, it's all part of a deeply wearying game. And here's, here's how Twitter philosopher Ben Dreyfus uh, put it in another unrelated but similar matter. Quote, the culture, war, the, the culture war is an emotional pyramid scheme, and at the top are politicians and media personalities who directly benefit from it. And at the bottom are people who pull their hair out by watching cable news all day but have no agency in the meaningless culture war, end quote. Rogan yells at Cruz and looks great to his base. Cruz retorts, he stokes resentment uh, about the wicked elites sneering at the good common folk, and he looks good to his base. And then Cruz and Rogan more or less laugh it off, not with each other, it's not like they're in cahoots together, but they, you know, they go their separate ways and they're fine, but everyone who follows them gets angrier and angrier at everybody who follows the other. Um, and, and it's not just a matter of disagreeing with a political adversary or arguing about policy or whatever, right? It's about, there's a weird element of this that's about marking art off limits. That's what Rogan's dig about Fantasia is meant to do. He's saying that certain things are not for Cruz, and by extension, Cruz's followers, his fans, whatever. Um, we all know about separating art from artists, and what Rogan appears to be suggesting here is the need to separate art from fan. And that, to use the parlance of our two Canadian-born friends here, is pretty fucked up, I think. But maybe I'm wrong. Peter, what am I missing? I don't know that you're missing much. This is a really idiotic fight between a sitting senator from Texas who thought he was going to be president and, frankly, came... Came closer than most human beings will ever come. Certainly. And the uncredited uh, rewrite artist behind uh, behind at least one draft of Bad Boys 2, which I didn't know until recently. Did not know that. that. Is that Rogan um, apparently did a rewrite pass on there. And look, you're, you're right to sort of talk about this as a, uh, to use Dreyfus's metaphor of this as a, a pyramid scheme or, you know, whatever. Um, but it's... I think it's, in some ways, it's it's even kind of worse than that. Um, it's it's not even clear that Seth Rogen and Ted Cruz benefit from this all that much, right? Yes, they don't. They get a little bit of attention. There's a bunch of articles about Seth Rogen 
in the trades right now. Like literally, this is an, this is what Variety and Hollywood Reporter are are covering. There's an Entertainment Weekly piece about it. But w- what is he even getting for like the the most childish? Like, I not that I'm against profanity, but he's not even saying anything. He's not making an argument against Ted Cruz. And Lord knows there's plenty of arguments you can make about how Ted Cruz is bad. But fuck you, like, over and over again, doesn't amount to much. And Ted Cruz, what's he getting out of this? Seth Rogen is, Seth Rogen is, is it's like arguing with a, with a pinata, right? Like, it, it nothing, I mean, I, I don't know, maybe at the end candy comes out of it, but like an empty pinata, right? Like, I, I don't even know what metaphor, it's just... It's it's so empty and, and dumb on just about every level, but then it happens and then we have people have to cover it and then there's these stories about it. And it's like mostly it's just it's just a reminder that Canadians are actually awful. <laughs> uh, I I mean, look, I, I understand what you're saying here, but I do think that there is, uh, if not an actual tangible benefit, there is a sort of psychic benefit, right? That you playing to the base always works. You never you you can rarely go wrong by playing to the base, and that's what they're both doing here. They both have they both have very different bases, and they're both uh, kind of playing to them, don't you think? I mean, I'm, you or, just want to play to the base, get a Substack. But Alyssa, that that I, I I for one am excited for the Ted Cruz Substack. First of all, uh, but but Alyssa, I I mean, what do what do you make of all this? I you're he already grew a beard and started a podcast. <laughs> basically, a hipster already. Oh boy. Um, as much as I can see how Seth Rogen might just get a certain visual, visceral pleasure from telling off Ted Cruz, who I really just find to be one of the most um, annoying sad sacks in American politics, um, I wish he were more creative about it, not least because he's actually made a pretty good movie about destroying your enemies um i don't know if either of you watched an american pickle his um hbo max movie in which he plays both um an immigrant who accidentally falls into a vat of pickle brine and wakes up in like hipster brooklyn 100 years later and said you know pickled immigrants great great grandson i think um and the movie is about a lot of things, including sort of the transmission of Jewish identity over time and how young people today are just an incredible disappointment to their elders. But it's also a movie about just how to go to war with someone really, really effectively. Um, The the two men sort of meet when uh, the immigrant is de-pickled. Sorry, I I really should not have gotten on a tangent of trying to explain this movie because it makes no sense. But it's it is a movie about, among other things, how to sort of weaponize cancel culture and then how to uh, sort of make hay out of being canceled, which suggests that Rogan is very aware of how these dynamics work. And the movie explores them in like pretty creative, funny ways. It's pretty clear-eyed about how this base playing in both directions can be monetized. So I, if he was going to mess with Tez Cruz on Twitter, like if Seth Rogen is going to become a full-time ceramicist and reply guy, I just wish he was doing it in a way that felt like it was a little bit more fun. I mean, what is, I, I think sorry. what you're saying here is that the Cruz Rogan Twitter battle is an American pickle. Except American pickle is much it. more charming. Um, just on every level. No, you um, certainly, yeah. you, you certainly make a, a, a point that's, worth kind of dwelling on is just that Rogan is smarter than this, but also Ted Cruz is smarter than this. And this is a one of the things that annoys me even more about Ted Cruz is he acts like an idiot. He does so intentionally, 
for his own gain. The guy isn't whatever else you, you want to say about him. He just isn't a moron. He is a really sharp, smart guy who has decided that the best way to pursue his desire, like to, to, uh, to promote himself, right? Not even to pursue a kind of politics that he actually wants to see in the world or policies or anything like that at this point. He's just completely gone way beyond that, just forgotten all sort of like, it's not even really meaningfully ideal, ideological at this point. It's just self-promotional. And so he acts like a jackass for, for political personal gain. And it's, it's kind of gross and kind of repulsive. And he's always done some version of this. And some, some amount of this is sort of built into the business of being a politician. And you know, we just sort of expect that there's some that, that, that like, you know, whatever. And in, in, in every politician is a cake and there's like a there's there's a bullshit icing on top of all of them. But Cruz has gotten rid of the cake. He is he is just three inches of bullshit icing and nothing else at this point. And, this and definitely... Rogan is is playing the same game here on Twitter, at least. And they're they're smarter than that. Now, not all actors are smart. Rogan is. He's a he's a writer and a and a director and and somebody who can actually like who can sort of think his way through these things. Um, and so it's just it, it's sort of infuriating on its own terms because these guys are uh, should be better than this, should be smarter than this, and like frankly, it should be more entertaining. Yeah, to and this, to see these guys go after each other, and this definitely has the vibe of Ted Cruz recognizes that like Josh Hawley got out of the whole let's mess with the electoral votes thing with like the complaint that he can weaponize, and so it's like he needs to you know victimize himself and be seen standing up for like you know the, like this mythical vision of the blue collar worker that he like carries around in his pocket all day uh, by picking a fight with someone in Hollywood and it's just it's all so dumb and annoying and you know Ted Cruz deserves to get like owned from here to eternity but this is just not particularly effective owning yeah i mean that's that is the 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 real crux of the matter here right is that it, it's just it's it's it it really and this is why I keep coming back to the idea of they're playing to their base. It really, it is very seal clappy. It is very like, all right, now we've done. Let's let's bark for our, our you know, our our fish here. I just, I, I, it, it is very annoying. Um, I, I, I do want to, uh, just briefly touch back on one of the things I'd mentioned, which is this idea of Rogan attacking, uh, cruise through the art that he likes, which I, I, I thought was a particularly pernicious bit of this. Well, but maybe, also, I, maybe I'm being overly sensitive here. And also, to be fair, it's entirely possible that Walt Disney would have liked Ted Cruz, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's not right. even sort of a smart own. Like, right. you know, Walt Disney was not a like a charming progressive individual. Um, um, and... I mean, Cruz's retort was just Walt Disney was a Republican. Yeah, no. exactly. And so... You know, I, again, I, I find that particular part of it annoying because it plays into the sort of stupid Republican sense of what Hollywood is. Um, and again, it's, I mean, I feel like you have a point about, you know, suggesting that certain people shouldn't be allowed to enjoy certain things, which is bad and dumb. But also I would just expect better argumentation from someone who, you know, not just there are smart people in Hollywood and then there is the specific kind of smart person Seth Rogen is, which is someone who made an entire movie about this kind of dynamic. Um, and so I 
I agree it's sort of pernicious. It also just feels so incredibly lightweight that it's hard for me to worry about it too much. Um, I mean, if people like Cruz are already sort of selling the idea that like everyone in Hollywood hates you anyway, how effective is that? Is it to use that as a comeback? It just. No, I do think there's there's sort of something that comes out of this. um, That they're sort of acting as if they're both acting as if they are on the same level in some way. And we're all sort of treating them as if they are on the same level, which in one way kind of makes sense, right? It, that's sort of what Twitter does. It bring it puts everyone on the same level. All right. That's sort of the dirt, kind of the, the, the mud, the, right? Not just in the, the mud, right? But this idea that in 2021, a, a minus list maybe at best, actor and kind of filmmaker um, is essentially on sort of the same cultural position as senator. And of course, you know, actors and writers and, and people have every right, like actually every right to, to say whatever they want about whatever legislator, to criticize them in whatever way. But then you've got the fact that you've got senators or a senator in this case, talking back and sort of participating in this. Ted Cruz is just sort of accepting that like that being a senator is primarily just about like shooting your mouth off and and just and 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 being i don't know what's the word for it um being being a dick right that there's not that there's not something that we're i mean you your your intro already uh Already yeah, no, we're, our rating here. Um, yeah, we're look that we're getting, like we're, going, we're getting that, the E on that, this one. That being a that being a senator isn't fundamentally about you know governing <laughs> yeah, or anything like laws, that. It's just oversight. like right. It's just clapping back at Seth Rogen, the guy you know from the Green Hornet, the Pineapple Express dude, right? The uh, the one of the voices in Sausage Party. <laughs> Terrible. That's right. That's what that's what a U.S. senator is spending his time doing yeah. because he kind of they fundamentally doesn't think of his job as doing some other thing. He thinks of his job as doing that. And all, but also it's weird that Seth Rogen, who is a filmmaker, who is an actor. And yes, again, these people all have the right and to, to criticize legislators. And even that's good in many ways. And. I mean, and all that, but that that a, that a filmmaker whose job is to sort of make art and do things that are you know sort of important is that like he also sort of thinks that what he's mainly doing now is like his, his job, what he should be doing is is like saying fuck you, Ted Cruz. To be completely fair to Seth Rogen, uh, in between no, that. being a Reply guy, he has also gotten really into and actually fairly good at making ceramics. Um, whereas Ted Cruz does not appear to have done anything else with his time except make a damn fool of himself and endanger American democracy. So, I mean, the screenplay for Neighbors 2, Sorority Rising, was a, a great artistic accomplishment. I mean, I'm just saying, if, if it is a contest between which of these men is making better use of their time um, during this ridiculous feud, the points have to go to Seth Rogen, even though there aren't very many points to distribute. All right. Uh, so what do we think? Is this little slap fight between Cruz and Rogan a controversy or a non-troversy? It's controversial. Abolish the United States Senate. <laughs> um, I don't think we should abolish the Senate. It's a core constitutional uh, uh, a body. I do think what I actually think is controversial 
is that this has gotten so much coverage in trade in the trade press that like this sort of thing ends which is completely inconsequential right there's there's just nothing meaningful has come out of this except for look at me look at me look at me on both sides and yet there's a half dozen articles right now if you just google the word rogan this is what comes up Playing to his base, as I said. Uh, I, I don't really think of this as a controversy or a controversy so much as just grow up. Both of you two grow up. Knock it off. Sink America don't make into me, the ocean. Don't make me come back there. Set you kids straight. All right. Uh, if you enjoy the show and who doesn't, it's great. Uh, make sure to head over to atma.thebulwark.com uh, where we'll have a bonus members-only episode about Joe Biden's fancy watch and fancier bike. Uh, why doesn't he invest in something practical? You might be wondering, like gold toilets uh, for his for his palatial estates. We'll we'll discuss that uh, in the in the bonus episode. And now on to the main event: "Promising Young Woman," stars Carrie Mulligan. Uh, it is a rape revenge movie that features neither rape nor revenge. Really, uh, Carrie Mulligan stars as Cassie, a med school dropout who is whiling her ways. Uh, away at a coffee shop and she spends her evenings out on the town where she pretends to be too intoxicated to stand in order to trick the quote-unquote nice guys into taking her back home and taking advantage of her. Um, she is trying to exact some measure of revenge for her friend Nina, who we never see because she has killed herself after being raped in medical school. As the film progresses, Cassie stalks those who transgressed against Nina. Not her attackers, exactly, at least not at first, but those who failed to believe her, her friends, school administrators, defense attorneys, other various sundry pieces of society. Um, along the way, we see the ways in which rape culture seeps into every aspect of society with uh, worries about the lives of young men being ruined by false accusations taking precedence over the lives of young women who are actually ruined uh, by sexual assault. Promising Young Woman reminded me of two movies. The first was Black Christmas, the 2019 remake of the, the horror film, and a movie I described on Letterboxd thusly, uh, quote, imagine feeding a million woke tweets into an AI and then getting that AI drunk on White Claw and then forcing the AI to write a script, and you have some idea of the Black Christmas experience, end quote. Promising Young Woman is much better than Black Christmas just because the acting is better, it looks better, the shooting is framed better, it's lit better. I mean, like, it's better on every uh, uh, basic level. But it does have that element of kind of like, look at this guy quoting David Foster Wallace. I bet he's going to be a sexual assaulter. And sure enough, there he goes. Uh, the other movie it reminded me of is Joker, uh, a movie about how we live in a society, man, and, and how those who are mistreated in society will lash out in antisocial ways. Um, it, and it reminds me of Joker in another very specific way, which is that uh, the writer-director, Emerald Fennell, uh, she tries to have it both ways here. She wants to, to see Cassie doing bad stuff to people who deserve it, um, but not so bad that we turn against her, just as Todd Phillips ensured we don't see Joker kill anyone who didn't quote-unquote deserve it. Um, for instance, in this film, in Promising Young Woman, Cassie gets a classmate drunk uh, and then makes that classmate think she's been raped, uh, and then we learn that nothing actually happened to the classmate. She's totally, she abs she's absolved of her of her uh, moral, moral harm there. Uh, and then later in the film, Cassie tells a dean that her daughter is being uh, being uh, more or less held hostage by a group of young frat boys. And it turns out that the daughter is just hanging out at a diner. Again, no no actual danger, no actual harm done. Um, the implication is more than held hostage. Well, r uh, yes, right. I'm, I'm being a little... little uh, coy. Coy here. Uh, so Promising Young Woman looks great. It's well acted. But it, it, frankly, it struck me as kind of dramatically inert. And it was more interested in having it both ways than really 
uh, lashing out and 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 doing something interesting or really mean. I, I wanted a meaner movie than this. But what do I know? I'm just a man. Alyssa, what have I missed here? Oh, man. I loved Promising Young Woman and have been basically fighting a week's-long death match with my colleagues at the Washington Post opinion section, uh, many of whom hate this movie. And I think that I understand it to be about something fairly different than either you or some of my colleagues at the Post do. I think it is not entirely or not fundamentally a rape revenge movie. It is a movie about getting drunk on your own sense of righteousness and turning that into a kind of suicidal quest. Um, and I I thought it was remarkable. I have thought about the movie every day since I watched it and really got under my skin. Um, and, you know, I think that you mentioned the acting is great. And I think the acting works to sort of further that theme in a couple of ways because we've mentioned Carrie Mulligan but we haven't talked about Bo Burnham who plays um her former med school classmate Ryan who she starts dating and then you know really falls for and then turns out to have been one of the people who was in the room the night that Nina was raped and Burnham is really good in this role I mean he is you know he is tender he's funny he's sort of you know silly and specific um there's the scene where we meet him Cassie's working in this coffee shop and you know to he brings up the fact that she dropped out of med school to mess with him uh she spits in his coffee and then to show her that he's serious he actually takes a drink of it it's like it's a very funny sort of like ballsy sweet scene um but the fact that it's an anti-meat cute that still ends up being quite exactly, um, you know, there's this hilarious scene of them bobbing around in a convenience store to, to the uh, immortal Paris Hilton single "Stars Are Blind." Um, but because he is sort of so sweet and winning, the movie actually you know does raise the question: like, is it correct? For Cassie to want to ruin someone, which she does once she finds out that Ryan has, you know, was in that position. Um, is it, you know, is it wrong to doom someone like that for a terrible decision? Um, you know, and a terrible decision that's not even an act of commission, but omission. Um, and it ends up balancing the movie in an interesting way. But I do think the movie is fairly clear about the cruelty of what Cassie does along the way, right? Um, you know, she, you know, it is a cruel thing to make someone think they've been raped. It is a cruel thing to make someone think that their daughter has been raped. And the movie never really suggests that the punishments Cassie is levying sort of along the way uh, as she works her way up to confronting Nina's rapist are justified or even terribly effective. Um, you know, the initial scenes with her confronting these bros who think that she's semi-comatose are pretty satisfying, um, at least if you're watching it as a female viewer, but the sense of proportion sort of starts to skew and get weird. And the ending, which I think has, you know, has been the subject of a lot of discussion in the movie, um, I think works really well in part because it shows how sort of self-destructive and off-kilter Cassie's mission has been, right? I mean, she effectively, I assume we can talk about the ending in detail in this podcast. Sure. No, we've already given away the the big end of second act twist. Yeah. Um but- you know, Which Cass- anybody can see coming pretty far away. Yeah. yeah. Um, Cassie, you know, goes to Nina's rapist bachelor party 
uh, threatens to carve Nina's name into his body and gets murdered and her body gets burned. And um, Emerald Fennel actually intended the movie to end there um, on just this really despairing note. And her, her producers basically made her add a coda to the ending where it turns out that she worked with the defense lawyer who defended Nina's rapist to, um, you know, sort of send the police to go find her body if she didn't return from this mission. Um, and I think, you know, I think the original ending would have worked really, might even have been clearer about, you know, the sort of movie's despairing core than the original is. Because in the original, like, the plan, you know, in the original ending, like, the plan doesn't work, right? Like, Nina and uh, Cassie ends up as dead as Nina, but her efforts to get revenge on Nina's rapist just come to nothing. Um, and the new ending, you know, I think kind of blunts that. That is the area where the movie kind of has it both ways. Like, Cassie dies, but her mission is ultimately successful. And it's presented as sort of justified because, like, I mean, she'd get murdered. Like, Al should probably go to jail for that. We see him murder her. There's no question about uh, his guilt. Well, uh, all right. Well, let me let me just interrupt here for a second because what we see is him uh, handcuffed to a bed where a woman who, like, is obviously intending him harm comes up to him with a knife and is going to, like, stab him in the chest. I mean, we, like, she says she's just going to carve Nina. I, like, it seems, I think you could make a very plausible case of self-defense there. I don't know. I mean, I mean, it's like it. I, I, he does keep smothering her after she's pretty incapacitated. Like. Yeah, well, I, but he's still also like half chained to the bed. I mean, it's like it's not. I, I don't know. Anyway, the movie. Uh, but, but the thing is, the movie doesn't want us to think about it as self-defense. The movie right. is designed right. to present that as yet another form of of violence that is inflicted by men on women Um when women are essentially in the right. right. I don't, again, I don't know if I, th I mean, I think Cassie's, morally, if not maybe tactically, I think Cassie is correct that Al is a rapist who's gotten away with it. And it's, I mean, it's interesting when she first meets him, he like does this whole sort of routine where, you know, he's like, Oh no strippers. My fiance wouldn't like it. Um, but the scene, I don't think Cassie is necessarily in the right in the scene, right? I mean, you, like, she presents herself as sort of a stripper using this language of her own safety and empowerment to do something that he's clearly not into. And you see his discomfort, but you also see her having done all of these disproportionate things to other people leading up to the event. And I think, I mean, that's why I read the ending as this sort of suicidal self-righteousness. Um, like, I don't think she is, I mean, I think there is a, yeah, I mean, there's, like, I think there is a case for self-defense, but I think that actually ends up bolstering my point that, like, this is not someone who is actually a righteous avenger. avenger. This is someone who has gotten so deep into her own narrative of what righteousness is that she is willing to not just you know destroy her own life from a career prospect standpoint from her relationships with other people but she is willing to literally kill herself to you know to, to play out this narrative i mean we haven't talked about the scene from earlier in the movie where cassie goes and visits nina's mom and nina's mom makes very clear that both that she has some sense of what cassie is up to and that she thinks it 
is doing nothing for her. It is she doesn't think it's doing anything for Cassie. I mean, she says it need, this needs to stop. Um, and that moment, I think, really reinforces that what Cassie is doing is not about justice. It's about self-gratification on a certain level. I I took that as like another another aspect of rape culture. Even the mom is saying we need to, you know, move on and let this go. And huh, I, I don't know. I really Peter- didn't read it that way. Um, maybe it's in part because I really like Molly Shannon and I thought she did a nice job of sort of underplaying that. And yeah, I mean, she's great. She's great. I, everybody in this movie is great. I love I love every act. Jennifer Coolidge, Clancy Brown, uh, like uh, Laverne Cox. Right? Alfred Molina is so Alfred good Molina. in two scenes, right? He's, he's yeah, basically two... there for one scene and then 10 seconds at the end. And Where he's he, opening he, an envelope and that's it. Yeah, and he just um, absolutely owns that scene that he's in in a way that reminds you what great acting can do, how much it can transform a single scene from being something that's like, this is fine and it works on paper to being, oh my goodness, here is, here's a real person who you have built in front of my eyes in three and a half minutes with, you know, 12 lines of dialogue. Uh, Peter, what did you make of the movie? Uh, This is an incredibly well-crafted movie in so many ways, not just the acting, um, as you said, sort of the way it's shot, the the framing. Uh, The thing that stuck out to me even more than the, uh, just the kind of, than the the shot choices was the production design and the way it worked with the costume design. Um, This movie is so intricately colored. And if you notice uh, throughout the movie, the costumes are are color coordinated with the sets, just in in really subtle ways, right? Not in ways that nece- it's not quite you know um, a garden state where you've got the guy in the shirt that matches the the wallpaper, but you've got always there's an there's a big highlight element. Not always near in so many scenes, there's a big highlight element in the background that then is brought to the fore by uh, some color in somebody's uh, in somebody's clothing, and it's just it's such a a, a well-crafted movie on so many levels. Um, you said that it reminded you of Joker. I really, actually, you'd you'd mentioned this beforehand. I think that I think that's wrong. Joker is 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 a is a social movement movie, and it is a a sort of um, justific. It is a movie that sort of toes the line between mocking and justifying uh, a loser's violent quest to get attention for himself. And this is something else. This actually struck me more as something along the lines of Death Wish or uh, Kill Bill, actually. And it really, it really struck me as Quentin Tarantino influence. Just with it, you've got the chapters being marked off, right? You've got this, um, you know, this sort of dark, semi-comic lady revenge plot, um, you know, uh, in which there is a there is an inciting incident that sort of drives the action. Um, forward in terms of here are the people who she is going to take out in order with one big difference of course is that in most traditional revenge films you start the first act is the the thing that demands justice and this movie is really interesting I think one of the most interesting choices it makes is to never show us that scene we never even see a single still frame from the video we see uh, we hear it hear bits from it but that's just little tiny bits, um, and it's it's not even clear what happened at the beginning of the film. And so in that way, it is sort of it's refusing to sort of to put that on screen in a way that makes the revenge stuff uh, purely easy, and also is 
it creates a kind of uncertainty and and vagueness and even a, almost a, a kind of a loss of memory in the viewer about what happened, right? So that we are rediscovering it with the rest of the world as you know, sort of as they find out. Um, I think where I'm frustrated. Peter, with can this I jump movie. in one yeah. Oh, yeah, second yeah, yeah, yeah. about that decision? I think it's really important to think of that to consider that decision in the context of a feminist sort of the history of feminist discussion about yeah, the yeah. use of I mean, rape I, in movies. Like it's, I think that's, it is that's a, very much right. It is very, a very clear decision not to turn Nina's victimization, not to sort of use the audience to re-victimize this fictional, fictional woman, right, by putting her rape on display for the audience as well as for the people who were there and watched it and treated it as a spectacle in person. We don't even see the face of the rapist, who is someone who you plausibly could have shown until the third act. No. Um, we I may see some like sort of shadowy uh, images on Facebook, but I don't believe we see the, that person's face in any real detail at all until Act Three when he shows up. You know when uh, we get to the bachelor party sequence. Um, I think uh, this movie frustrated me in in other ways because it's in I it it felt both too simple and even more than that too cynical. Right for its own good, um, it's a movie in which, and this is I, this sounds like I can hear myself saying this, and and I know sort of how it's going to sound in the one sentence that I'm saying, but in which every single guy is awful, and it might have been, I, and I that I think I that's think a that's legitimate choice, all. right? I don't think that's true at all. I who mean, is the who is the who is the dude who it comes across as good even that even her dad is sort of cluelessly out of well, it. Well the defense attorney. Yeah, I mean the, the defense attorney. No, is but Molina was involved in all of this. And but he, he, yes, he has he, but he's, he's repented. this repentant figure. But he's repented. Right. Like I mean he's, you know, he's so repentant that he's willing to sort of be enlisted in Cassie's plot. Like I actually thought he was almost this fixture this figure of like almost fictional goodness. Um in a way that actually sort of undercut my sense of that as a complete character. I and I actually think like Ryan comes across as fairly complicated until there's this sort of self-preservational weakness at the end, right? Like he's been he respects every single one of Cassie's boundaries in like a real way, right? I mean, he does not touch her. Mm -hmm until she indicates that that's okay. He is sweet. I mean, the guy's a pediatric surgeon. He knows Paris Hilton songs. The use of music in this movie is fantastic, by the yep. way. It's like even the use of It's Raining Men in that opening sequence is like a very specific call out, not just to that song, but to its use in Bridget Jones' Diary, which is one of the seminal romantic comedies for women of Cassie's age, etc. But I actually, I mean... You know, one of the things that's interesting about the scene um, at the bachelor party is that Al doesn't actually behave in the way that you'd expect. He's not like strippers. Yeah, like he actually. But isn't know, that the point is that is that we all see these these guys who are capable of self-control and that deep down they're actually just purely awful. But I don't think that's true for Ryan at all. Right. I mean, like the evidence that we have of his badness is this like it's again, like I said, it's a sin of omission, not commission. Right. Like he didn't rape Nina. He didn't, as far as we know, touch her. He like Alison Bree's character and Alison Bree's so good in this movie as she is in everything. Um, you know, they stood by and they did nothing. And that's bad. But it I mean, the it's movie very bad. And I feel like this movie is trying to indict him by saying, yeah, sure. Like it, it, it sort of. I think to me, I watched this directions. and, I, and I, I knew that that moment was coming. Like, a, you know, something like that was going to happen because what this movie is trying to say is ultimately everyone's in on it. 
Everyone is in on it. They're all part of it, and they're all out to get you. And and I think, a, and again, I think that's a legitimate choice. I and it's certainly not even an uncommon one in genre films, in revenge films, right? Like that. In some ways, it just sort of partakes of the genre. Um, but in this context, if you're trying to say something about uh, about the issues that this movie takes on, then I think there might have been a more interesting movie in there had it had had it had sort of a, a more complicated relationship to to other people um in a way that like look i mean i think that the the thing that really that really bugs me about all of this or, or a that like i don't really bugs me but a thing that somewhat bugs me is you she's she the first act is her just picking up random dudes to punish and as far as we know she is only scaring them, although it's somewhat unclear because there are two two types of marks in the book, right? Totally unclear. And, I was, was going to ask you. And uh, right, and and so we see a blue mark. What does a red mark mean? We never find out. Uh, but sh what she says, you see dozens, if not hundreds, of marks in that book. And what she says is that every single time she gets picked up by a guy who looks nice and acts nice, right up until the moment when he is trying to uh, assault her. And that is the movie's kind of that is the movie's view is that all of these is that everybody else looks nice and acts nice. Right. And it's not even just it's not even a view that's limited to dudes. It's a it, it extends to her female friend from uh, from med school to the dean who supposedly looked into this. They all look nice and act nice right up until the moment when they should be good. And that's when they either forget you and leave you behind or they or they go after you if they're if they're male. And that's. Again, I'm not even sure that's an I'm not saying that's an illegitimate choice. What I'm saying is it simplifies things in a way that I get for dramatic purposes and I think works in some ways here and and gives the movie a kind of a forcefulness and a power, but also robs it of of, of the complexity that a that a that an issue movie that wants to say something about the world actually needs. But I think the complexity, sorry, Sonny, I promise I will stop defending this movie. I'm just clearly in like full on engaged. It's okay. Promising no, go for, it. go for um, it. I think the I like that you're defending this. I think the complexity in the movie is not about uh, who's guilty of the crimes. It's about what the mandatory minimums and maximums are, right? Like, because if a problem is society wide, what is the most effective way to change it? How do you incentivize changes in behavior? What is the appropriate punishment for each of these sort of discrete moral crimes? And that's why I think the movie is as much about Cassie being sort of suicidally obsessed with this quest as it is about anything else. So many of the things, so many of the punishments that she levies lack proportion. And the movie sort of brings you in by making her you know, acts of vengeance seem kind of fun and justified, but then they get queasier, right? I mean, the very specific, the fact that at least two of her revenge plots center on re-traumatizing someone in a similar way that she believes Nina was traumatized makes this really queasy, right? Like, is it supposed to be an act that introduces empathy or does she just want to rape people by proxy because her best friend was raped, right? I mean, that's really disturbing. And I think that the movie is aware of that disturbing note. And I think what is, I think the ambiguity comes not from the idea of culture-wide complicity, but from the idea uh, that, you know, 
there are different ways that people participate in this culture and therefore maybe there actually ought to be a range of ways in how we address it. I uh, I, I have a couple of spare thoughts that I have jotted down in my notebook uh, while, while you guys have gone on and on without me. How dare you? Uh, no, but I, I, uh, I my, I, when, when, when Peter says that this is not a social movement film, like, joker i just i question what movie he actually watched i mean you even said it yourself it's it's in every level of society it's uh, from from the friends uh who who refuse to believe nina to the administrators who look the other way to the parents who say come on just let this go to the cops who were like ah you know you know how these crazy broads get it is a, it's a, it's an indictment of every single level of society all the way down. It is it is again it's like it reminds me of Joker. It's like man, we live in a society and that society is bad and people need to people need to, you know, take it upon themselves to make the society better. I mean, it is it is the the whole movie is a cinematic uh, production of rape culture. That's what it is. I mean, that's just what that's just what it's doing. I like we could argue about whether or not that's good or bad, but that is what the film is. Um, and I, I just I, I just have to I have to disagree with your read, uh, Alyssa, on on whether or not the movie thinks that what uh, Cassie is doing is justified. I mean, I, 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 I again, I think it would have been a stronger film if it hadn't given her the series of outs. If it hadn't shown her only doing the blue hash marks, who knows what the red hash marks are, right? If it, if we had seen her like actually cut some guy's nuts off, or like, uh, you know, whatever, do do something to one of these uh, uh, would be rapists. The Eli Roth remake would, of this film is gonna be it, lit. Would be it'd be lit. It'd be lit. Uh, or but or, or again with the with with uh, her friend Allison Bree or the 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 administrator who's you know uh, daughter that she she, she that. Cassie makes uh, the the administrator thinks is in danger. She the movie gives us an out to be like, oh well, it wasn't that bad. It wasn't actually. She didn't. She was just. She was just trying to make them aware of the pain of it. But, and and I think that's. I think it's a total. Cop but I, I think it's a total. But cop I think the choice of actresses there again is really um, is is a tell in the opposite direction, right? Like, I mean. Connie Britton, who plays the dean of the med school, is most famous to most audiences as like as Mrs. Coach on Friday Night Lights. Like she is this incredibly sympathetic, warm, motherly figure of identification. Alison Brie, in the same way, from both like Mad Men and Community, is you know this and and um, and Glow most recently again is this figure of sort of identification and sympathy. And I think you cast both of those women in those roles so you see the impact of even the limited thing that Cassie is doing to them. I, I mean, I just think this movie is so pop culturally aware and engaged that I just think you have to weigh the casting of those specific actresses in those roles and how we're supposed to interpret those acts. I, I would also say you should probably take the writer-director's words into account. And what she's basically said was this movie was inspired by the idea uh, that, you know, everybody thinks of themselves as a good person. So what happens when someone comes along and shows you that you're not? And it's not that you're that's to be like, that's unambiguous. She's not saying comes along and shows you that the world is more complicated. She's saying somebody comes along and shows you you're a bad person. And that's I think what this movie is about is about showing all these people who look good and think of themselves as good and who we all see as good as bad. And and Cassie is also explicitly cast as a Christ figure uh, in the in the film's opening shots and in her last appearance. I mean, she is taking the suffering of the world upon her. 
Uh, and we don't think of Christ as a bad person doing bad things to people to to uh, and, and to make them, I don't know, uh, feel better. I don't know. I, I, I just think I again, I there were there were things I really liked about this movie. Yeah. I just think it I think it I think it. I think it shied away from what it could have been uh, because it was uncomfortable having Cassie actually do bad things on screen. Hmm. Either way, I think we can probably all agree that we're super excited to see what Emerald Fennell does next. Like, this is a debut movie. She, yeah. like, this is pretty impressive. She, have you guys watched Killing Eve? I haven't watched I've seen Killing the first Eve two all. seasons of it, um, and it's very good. Uh, and similarly gets to, un like, takes viewers to uncomfortable places with women doing really dark stuff it is in fact about one woman who is a the bad guy um nominally uh right in a sort of it's a kind of a two-hander it's a bigger plot, uh, cast than that one the but um one woman who's a bad guy who's basically an assassin and she, she like she is well aware of the the fact that she is a complete sociopath who has no feelings or you know and just like it kind of gets like a, a mild sort of um uh, tantalizing pleasure out of killing people and then the woman who works for the intelligence agency that who is tracking her who is learning that she also like uncomfortably feels the same way and so it's it, it's a, it's really very very good um the thing i was actually going to say about that show and the, its relationship uh to this is the first season of that show uh, was co-written um by phoebe waller bridge uh, uh who is also the writer of fleabag um and uh the first season really benefits from from her presence on the writing team just because she is she's so in touch with people's flaws and she thinks people are kind of awful and she also thinks they're really kind of wonderful and her approach sort of gives that show a, a, especially in its first season a real heart to it um even as people are just doing absolutely awful amoral things and realizing that they have no kind of sent no internal limits no speedometer that keeps them from doing horrible things and in some ways i in some ways i i think there might have been a more interesting or not maybe not more interesting even uh, a more complex version of this film that wrestles with the fact that people aren't just oh they think they're good but actually we're all pieces of shit instead sort of suggested people are are just much more complicated than any of us can can realize and we're all we are kind of awful in certain ways um and some people are truly deeply awful and irredeemably so but i mean again uh, there's there's more to it than that and i think this movie just is it wants it it just wants it it wants to make this stuff kind of simplistic and easy in a way that is that is entertaining um i i think is is true but um i don't know i wish i'd seen the movie Alyssa says she saw okay. i it's I, I i like Alyssa's interpretation it's a better movie that way okay uh all right so what do we think thumbs up or thumbs down on promising young woman thumbs way up i'll give it a thumb up yeah uh i'm gonna go thumbs down just to be just to be difficult uh i i just don't i don't think it uh, I don't think it quite works as 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 seen in this conversation. Um, all right, that is it for today's show. If you loved it, make sure to check out our members-only bonus episode about Joe Biden's Rolex and Peloton uh, at atma.thebulwark.com. Uh, make sure to tell your friends. A strong recommendation from friend is basically the only way to grow podcast audiences. And if we don't grow, we will die. Uh, if you didn't love today's episode, please complain to me on Twitter at Sunny Bunch. I will convince you that it is, in fact, the best show in your podcast feed. See you guys next week. <laughs>